All right. Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see you guys here this morning. Uh, my name is Seth, one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. We are moving. Uh, we are moving towards Christmas. It's crazy. It is right around the corner. We continue in Advent. Uh, we also continue at the same time, really, in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you've got a companion uh, guide, uh, you can turn to page 73. Otherwise, we'll be in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. While you're turning there, uh, let, me, uh, let me share this. Imagine it's late into the afternoon, probably early in the evening, and this, this gal, she is the wife of Herod Antipas. He is the tetrarch or the ruler of one-fourth of formerly Herod the Great's kingdom. And his new wife, her name is Herodias, and she sits at the top of her palace in this city, Tiberias, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, across the sea, this eight-mile-wide kind of large lake, and she can see the other side. And there's mountains there and mountains to the west. And Galilee is the most fertile region in all of Israel. And so it's probably lush, depending on the time of year. There's a lushness to it. There's green and greenery. And maybe as it's late into the day, as she sits atop this, this palace, as she's sipping the drink of her choice, whatever that might be, perhaps the sun is coming in from behind her and casting, casting the rays of purple and blue and violet and red and yellow. And as it hits the lake and it shines and it shimmers in this moment, it would be hard to not capture the peace that God gives us. It's a peaceful moment. And yet, this woman, as she sips her wine, despite the fact that she is trying to be satisfied with life, peace for all of her life has eluded her. It's a peaceful moment, and yet she has no peace. Why? She's married, recently married to a guy named Herod Antipas. Her former husband was a guy named Philip and in the midst of their relationship, she leaves one for the other, and she comes to be the princess of this side of the kingdom, not on the east side, but on the west side. And here she is, and she's married to this man, but in the midst of this story, one man, his name was John, also known as John the Baptist, enters into the story, and as he looks at their marriage, he says, that's not right. What you're doing is not the way that God designed marriage. They were both Jewish people, both knew better than that, and yet this is how they were doing life. And so John spoke out against it. And here's this woman sipping her drink, and she's trying to be satisfied as much as possible because while back, was she manipulative? Yes, because she turned, she, she um, convinced her husband to put John in prison. She is vindictive. She is immoral. She knows all of those things, and yet she is okay with it because this is where she sits. This is the status that she holds. This is the drink of her choice, the food that she has, the clothes that she can wear. She doesn't care really what the world thinks. And yet John said that that's not right. And so as she begins, as she begins to remember this story, she knows that while John is in prison, the words of John the Baptist, little did she ever anticipate, she thought that throwing him in prison, having him there would silence the words, would silence the fact that what he was saying was actually making sense to her husband. 
And so when the opportunity presented itself, she had him killed, thinking that's what will bring peace to my life. And here she sits atop of the tower. It's a peaceful moment, and yet peace eludes her. And so the story of many, maybe not in such dramatic form or drastic fashion, but it is this reality that the things that we seek and the things that we want and the things that we pursue that we think will give us completeness, will give us wholeness, is not the way that it really works. Last week we saw that there are these moments and circumstances in life that lead us to a place of desperation. And if you're not there yet, you're like, I haven't had that, just know that it's coming because that's a part of life. It's a part of life. But the older you get, the more broken you understand yourself is, the more that the world is broken, your family, the people around you, your coworkers, everybody in this whole space, this little pea-sized planet in the universe is broken. And you begin to realize that desperation is a very much a daily thing. And here's the good news, is that when there's desperation, it forces us to put our hope into something. And last week, you know, as we're in this season of Advent, we talked about hope. And so for us, for those, of, for those of you who know Christ, there is this sense that we know that our hope, the richest hope ever to be found in this world is found in one place, in one place alone, and that is in the person and the works of Jesus Christ. That's lit. You can't tell, but it's lit. Just so you know. It's in there. Somebody cut the wick. Brady. I blame Brady. Here's the deal though, right? So just because we know as Christians that there is hope, there's a world out there, a group of people who because their hope is in someone or something other than Jesus, guess what? Not only is desperation a daily thing, not only is that a reality because their hope is in something or somebody else, here's the reality, is that, desper- or excuse me, um, is that opposition is gonna be a daily thing. And that's fundamental to our nature, right? That's the sinful state of humanity, right? There, there are always going to be sides. There are always going to be groups, and there are always going to be stances. It's just something as simple as fandom and sports, and it's as complex as politics. There are always going to be those things. And so from this passage, though, as we get to look at this, we're also going to find that there's this cultural opposition, right? More specifically, it's not just that there's opposition, right? It's not just that your coworker annoys you like, no, like nobody else, you know? Like he just constantly clicks his pen, click, 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 and you're like, oh my gosh, and you just want to break it. There's always opposition. But more specifically, spiritually, right, there's always going to be this cultural opposition to the gospel. And this morning, we have the opportunity, as hard as it may be, to speak somewhat plainly to this issue. There's a bazillion things we could say. I just want to let the text speak for itself. Because there is a reality about this passage is that culture has a platter. And culture is eager and ready to place the head of anybody who opposes them on this platter. As the world in which we live in. And so here's this question, gosh, guys, for us in this world, the world in which we live in as Christians, we go, gosh, how in the world do you and I live in that kind of a world? Might I suggest this, is that the world, I think, is far more opposed to modern Christianity than they are to Jesus. 
So if there's a resolution that we can find, it's in the, the real, historical Jesus. That's where we're going, okay? We're jumping into Mark chapter 6, verse 14. We're looking at the opposition, okay? Here we go. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Push pause. Let's double tap right here into the Scripture, because here's the deal. I think what Mark is doing is he's setting up something for us as the listeners to this story. You see, there's this guy named Herod, and he's heard all about this Jesus character, all about this Jesus character, but Herod has never come in contact with Jesus. So does Herod have a relationship with Jesus? No, but who does he have a relationship with? It's this guy. His name is John the Baptist. And so John comes into the story, and John has the opportunity to point Herod Antipas to Jesus. And this is significant. It's important because there's a lot of confusion around who Jesus is, not just in today's world. You go talk to somebody on the streets and say, hey, who's Jesus? They might, mm, mm, he's a good guy. He's a teacher, prophet, I don't know. Heal people. You go back then, same thing. Who's Jesus? Man, there's a lot of confusion. If you didn't know, if you weren't in relationship with him and you hadn't been close, you hadn't seen it, you hadn't talked to him or talked to the disciples, right, your information is incredibly limited. And so there's this confusion. This is a guy who's healing. He's teaching with authority. He casts out demons, right? He speaks, and the entire sea goes down to nothing. Oh, man, this Jesus, who is he? By the way, people, I think, are asking that question today. There's people in this room. Who is he? Who is he, Jesus? Who is this guy? I mean, I like, who is this man really? And here's what, here's what it says. It says that some said that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others, they said that he is Elijah. And others still said that he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Okay, guys, get this. Okay, so let's start with John the Baptist, right? These are these three different categories that people have been putting Jesus into. A, John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries. How are they the same person? I don't know. But they live in a world where information is limited. You go to the mall today, you see somebody famous, and you see who they're with. You're like, you go to the mall. Who goes to the mall? I don't know. You go to the Fargo Dome. There you go. You go there, and you see Jesus, and you see John. And all of a sudden, you take a picture, and you snapshot that, and you post that to Instagram or, or Twitter or X or whatever it is because the world's changing so fast, right? And so you post it there and all of a sudden the entire world knows that Jesus and John, man, they're two different people. Now they know who they are and where they're at and what they're doing. That's not the world in which they lived in, right? Because information was so different and it shows how little these people know. By the way, John the Baptist didn't have any special powers before he was killed, right? John the Baptist, what did he do? He baptized people. I said, be prepared for someone who's coming behind me. He's better than I am. Oh, by the way, these people think that John the Baptist died and came back with special powers. They're like, man, if that's the way that it works, sign me up. Yeah, don't. Don't drink that juice. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. But some people think John the Baptist. Maybe it's Elijah. Right? You remember Elijah? Elijah is this prophet in the Old Testament, and, uh, and so God is using him in powerful, powerful ways to speak truth into the people of Israel, and eventually God says, hey, your time is limited. 
I want you to get this guy named Elisha, and I want you to, to disciple him and pull him alongside of you. So Elisha's like, cool, got it, brings him alongside, and they start to do life together, and all of a sudden, Elijah's time is up, and God decides to take him into heaven. And so I just picture this moment where Elisha's standing. He's like, man, today was so busy. I'm exhausted. Hey, Elijah, I was thinking about stopping at Joe's Tavern on the way back home. Where'd you go? And God takes him into heaven makes far more sense that maybe somehow this is Elijah coming back to earth. It makes more, much more sense than John the Baptist being raised from the dead with special powers. Maybe it's a prophet. Maybe it goes even further. Maybe it's Moses. Maybe, maybe it's Abraham. People don't know what they don't know until they know it from someone who knows it. You just keep going, right? There's this thing. And so as we think about this, there's all these, these different options as people are thinking about it. And yet when Herod hears this, mm, Herod doesn't even need to hear the list of people. He's like, you could have stopped at John the Baptist because I think I know who this is. I think this is John. And here's why. Because I think all along I knew that it was wrong. I knew that my marriage was wrong, and I knew that killing John was wrong. And I had him beheaded. It's my decision. I chose to do that. This is John the Baptist. Surely he's back from the dead. And so what follows then is a flashback and takes us back to this moment. By the way, what happens here, this is the second time in all of Mark where Jesus is not the focus of the story. You're like, why in the world is that? Because Mark is using John the Baptist in his ministry and his death as the predecessor in both ways to move us towards the cross. So there's stuff that we learn here as Mark is moving us and inching us and preparing our minds and preparing our hearts for the moment in which Jesus will be on the cross, right? This is a season of Advent. And so as we think, we move towards, you know, Christmas. And for many, for so many people, Christmas is about sweet little baby Jesus entering into the world. And Brady mentioned it just a little bit ago, right? Our awe and amazement and wonder, as cute as he is, is so much more that Jesus would ever choose to, to, to leave heaven and to leave that and to put on the form of man, to this, this gross, sinful, sweaty, stinky, achy, needy body so that he could come and atone for the sins of the world. Utter amazement. That that's what he would choose to do. So and as we prep for Advent, as we move towards Christmas, remember we're always moving towards Easter. Always. The story is always moving in that direction. That's the gospel-centered nature of the Bible that we read. Okay, here we go. Verse 17. Here's what happens. Here's this flashback. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John. Circle or highlight or underline or do whatever you need to to remember that word because that is a word that Mark uses later to describe this Jesus moment when he is seized. Again, we're moving towards the cross and it says he bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, guys, here's the deal. This is Herod Antipas. This is a confusing and messy story. And tracing the lineage of Herod the Great is no easy task. Remember Herod the Great? He was the guy who's in charge as Jesus was born, has this massive kingdom, slaughters all these babies. Here's his son, and he's in rule. He's a tetrarch over Galilee, right? Just one of four rulers of that kingdom. 
and tracing this lineage of Herod the Great is no easy task. Trust me, right? This is a family. Uh, Herod the Great had 10 wives, uh, two of which had the exact same name. Tell me if that's not confusing. He had many, many, many sons, all of which, or not all of which, but many of which can possess the name Herod. Also, not confusing. Um, also, this is where it gets strange. There's various incestuous relationships. Okay, that's weird. That's where you get to this. And so this family... Is, is, is devastated and confounded and perplexed. It's all this, this political, it's vindictive, there's revenge, there's power grabbing, and oh, by the way, there's something as simple and basic as lust. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of lust, if it was a power grab lust or if it was, or if it was sexual, but here's the reality. Here's the reality is that inside of this family, there is a dirty little secret because when they get together, there is Herodias, who is married to Philip, who is the half-brother of Antipas, and is there in the same space. And as she looks at him, and he looks at her, hubba, hubba happens. I don't know if people still say that, but I just did. And you know what it means, okay? There's something happening, the eyes, the heart, the whole being. And there's something happening between these two. See, John knew that it was lawful, it was, it was lawful to marry your brother's wife if your brother passed away, because then what you do is you take her into the fold of the home and you continue her lineage and protect her line. See, that's a loving thing to do, but what was not loving and what was not lawful is to just take your brother's wife. See, at the base of the day, the most fundamental part of that is just stealing, you're just taking that which you want for yourself. Oh, the, by the way, it's also this thing called adultery. And that's what's happening here in this moment. Oh, by the way, so when uh, Herodias decides and she, sh she shifts allegiances and she's like, see you, Philip, and hello, Antipas, she comes over and she's now got her rulership, her kingdom as a princess in, in Tiberias. She brings with her her daughter, Salome, right? Here's where it gets a little weird, okay? So Salome, yeah, uh, we know this. This is normal. Like when this type of relationship happens, that Salome is now the stepdaughter of Herod Antipas, right? That makes sense. Here's where it gets stranger. Um, she was also his niece on his father's side. Gets even stranger. She was also his grandniece on his mother's side. <laughs> You're like, oh, man, this family's a gem. Can you imagine that family Christmas? Oh, by the way, Salome later marries another half-brother, Philip the Tetrarch. It gets even weirder. <laughs> man, this family is messed up. This is messed up family. And yet, and so here's what happens is that John enters into the story, and as John begins saying these things, right, what happens is that he begins to threaten everything that Herodias and Herod had really built. That's where we're at. And so John has spoke out against this. And so here's what happens, is that she, despite the fact of all these things happening, she convinces with all her manipulation and everything, she convinces her husband in this political gambit to send John to prison. And so John is over here in prison, and here's what she thinks. She thinks, well, if he's in a dark cell, a dark dungeon, then here's what happens. His voice is no longer heard, and therefore, I feel better about myself. The world thinks better of us. We can actually get on with life the way that we want it to. To be this is peace that's what she hopes but see i think there's something inside of her despite the fact that john is in prison something doesn't change right here's what it says in verse 19 look at this and herodias had a grudge against him oh 
grudge. I'm sure none of you guys have ever had a grudge, ever. See, a grudge, a grudge is this. A grudge is when you get entangled. It's when you get ensnared. It's probably, in her case, it's this anger that's inside of her that is taking her captive. And so every time she even pictures the image of John in her head, she thinks, how dare he? Who is he to be able to tell me the difference between what is right and wrong in this world? Doesn't he know that this is acceptable? Nobody else cares about this. Only you, John, and your silly little Bible. You see, I think that something is still turning inside of her, and now his well-being or her well-being is tied to her own well-being because if he in any way, shape, or form is good, then she is bad. But if he is bad, then she feels a little bit better. How normal does that feel in today's world? It does feel a little normal, unfortunately. You see, but it goes on. It's not just that she holds a grudge. It says that, like, it's this bigger thing. She says that she wants to put him to death. Like, I, like if I could cut this off permanently, that's what I would do. That's what her want is. Okay, so if we come back to our board, here's what we're going to find. The word for want in the Greek right there with her is the word thelo, okay? And it means wish or desire, right? And so we begin to see that she, you know, from her perspective, you know, Herodias or any of us for that matter, like we come at life and we have the sense, we go, man, if like I was writing the story, this is how I would write it. This is my desire. This is my want. This is my will. Here's the unique thing though. This is the exact same word that we use to talk about God's will. Thelo. You see how these two things then are in opposition to each other. There's God's will and there's man's will. You see, when God created and designed the universe, his desire, his design was for the world to be complete to be whole, for it to not have any gaps or brokenness inside of it, that sin and separation, all that stuff, that's not what he wants. And when everything is in right working order, the way that God has designed it, guys, here's what it is. It's what the Bible calls shalom. It's the peace of God, and that's the way it was designed. But as sin enters into the world, as selfless men are flipped upside down and become selfish all of a sudden, like this, this will of mine becomes a lot stronger. Who's going to win between this one or that one? As small as this is, it wins 90% of the time. That's a made-up number, by the way. No research. Just whatever. Like, this wins for us. And so when you think about us, whenever we get into this, like, in anybody, you go, like, do people want for the world to look better? Absolutely they do. Intrinsically, it's wired inside of us that we would want, because we are created in the image of God, that we want, in the midst of whatever my circumstances, I want the world to look the way that God designed it. The problem is, is that I want it to look the way that I design it more. That's the tension in these words and in this passage. So when I think about this, I'm going to pull this over here. This is the classic game of Jenga, and I just want you to think about, so this in all of its gameness is not missing any pieces. There's no holes. It's, and you could say that this structure right now is actually resting in shalom because it's complete and it's whole and it's not missing anything. But here's what happens, is that as life moves, 
goes on, these things begin to be removed. And with one thing, as one thing is removed, whether it's one or if it's two or if it's another, over here, all of a sudden, shalom begins to break down. Yeah, I think that's going to bust it. I'm going to go that way. I busted it last time, and I want to stay standing for a little bit longer, right? So here's what happens. As these things begin to come out, shalom is beginning to crumble because it's no longer complete, and it's no longer whole. And guys, can I just say, like, sometimes you play this game, and you get down, and it's just wobbly as all get out. And for so many people in life, that's the way that they're doing life. Because their life is not the way that God designed it, right? Their faith, their family, their workplace, their friendships, their, their um, whatever it is about them. It's, maybe it's their, their mental health, their physical health, their emotional health, whatever it is. All of a sudden, we begin to see, we begin to see that life is complex and that the wholeness that I experience in life, the completeness of shalom, the way that it's designed is not just dependent on one or two things, it's dependent on a whole bunch of things. And as they continue to get removed here and there, here and there, oh my goodness, this is so gonna, yep, done. But that's what we fear, right? And so for so many people, here's what's happening. As one gets removed, as one falls out, as something in my life falls apart, here's what we're doing is that we're desperately trying to grab one and put it back in. And then, but another one comes out and then you're putting it in and you're constantly trying to fill the holes. And yet for every one that you fill, two more continue. And it's this consistent and constant and incessant thing to try and put your hope in something that brings stability and peace to your life. And sometimes it falls over completely and you have to rebuild. But here's the interesting thing when you think about Herodias, is that Herodias has been filling those gaps and those holes for a long time. One of those blocks was a man named Antipas, and everything that came with that marriage and everything that came with that relationship. And so she had another block in its place, and it was her, it was the stepbrother, it was Philip. And so she removes Philip, and she puts in this one. All of a sudden, John shows up, and he pushes it back out, and he says, nope, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Do you get it? You see, for her, it's not as simple as taking something and refilling it. For her, from her perspective, what's the easiest way to get peace in her story? The easiest way to get peace in her story is to chop off the finger of the one pushing. If I can just remove a voice, if I can just remove a person from this scenario, this is the human side of thinking that we would say, but then I will have peace. You see, desperation is a daily thing, and it forces us to put our hope into something, and we long for that type of a peace, but the reality is, is that this one is so infatuating that this is the way that I would write the story. This one oftentimes wins out. It's the will of man over the will of God. And shalom, though in the, in the Bible's terms, is not the absence of conflict. Sure, that's in part what it is. But shalom in the Bible is that if God looked at that mess and he would be like, man, that's going to be a pain for the rest of your life. How about instead I give you a whole new Jenga set that's glued together that will never fall apart? That's the relationship that you have with Jesus. Doesn't mean the life isn't still hard 
right? But that's what he promises us. And yet the reality is, is that for us, that we know that culture has a platter and they are easy, eager and ready to put the head of anyone who opposes them onto this platter. Anything that they feel like brings the peace or breaks the peace in their life, they will do this. And that's the world in which we live in. Guys, but if I were to step back and with a lot of grace and a lot of humility, can I say this kindly? I don't think it's just world culture that has a platter. I think Christianity does too. I think that in far too many situations, we're willing to put the heads of our brothers and sisters, figuratively speaking, onto this platter because we have these agendas. Here's this question. How in the world do we speak out in today's world? See, John spoke out. If we were to just take an excursus here for a moment because we need to be able to speak plainly about this, how do we speak out in today's world? Because our world is broken. It's filled with racism. It's filled with entitlement. It's filled with social injustice. It's filled with bigotry. It's filled with war. And for every single one, etc., 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 there is a group and there is a, um, there is a stance and a side that people pick, every single one. And so for us in the Christian world, guys, to fight for a single issue, you know, in, in this story, you know, as John was talking to Herod, right, you think about even just the politics of this. If we were in our world to talk about pro-life on one side or on the other side to talk about, like, aid for the poor, you look at those things and you go, which one is biblical? Yes, they both are. They are both biblical things. But yet in today's world, when you pick one, you identify with a group. And guess what happens is that even if you have good intentions to help address one issue, right, what happens sometimes is that inevitably you pick a side and now you're radically and, and diametrically opposed to a dozen other issues. This is so hard. You guys, you add in cancer culture into that and the chaos of social media where every Joe Smo can just throw something out into the world without even any bit of information. Here's what I think. Goes the internet. It's the world in which we live in. Guys, here's the reality. They're both biblical issues. The problem is that neither one of those groups is 100% in alignment with the gospel. That's who we are. We are Bible-centered people, gospel-driven people because we are followers of Jesus and the kingdom that he is creating. And so with all that cancel culture and social media, like I know that, that speaking out in today's world, guys, it may not lead to death, and it might, and I hope not, and I think that's encouraging, but the reality is, is that it may. Are you okay with that? And even if it's that, like here's the reality, is that even if it doesn't lead to death, it's certainly going to feel like death. John, what did he do? He spoke out. He, he spoke out. He wasn't concerned about the politics behind what that was. He was just concerned about what was right. That's where he was at. I, I love this passage in Titus 2. We're just going to take a jump over here for a second. Titus 2, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, 11 through 14. Here's what it says. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I love that you start with grace. Who are we talking about? We're really talking about Jesus, but we're talking about the gospel. Grace cannot be removed from the conversation of the person and the works and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, but it is a gift. Grace is a gift to be received by faith, not by works. And so as we start talking about this, here's this gospel message that comes into the world. What does it do? It brings salvation. Who is it for? For everyone. 
Not one group, not the other group, not one side, not one side. It is for everyone. Does that mean that we just get to live happily ever after like Disney movies? No. Here's the thing. The same grace is the thing that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's also the same grace that says that we are to live upright or control self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So whenever you are in opposition to another person or to people that you know or something that's happening in the world, it doesn't matter. When there's opposition, our response as Christians should be able to step back, take a step back. It doesn't matter where you kind of stand. Take a step back and go, gosh, where are the yeses and nos? Where in this is the gospel and the Bible evident and true? To what degree is it in alignment with the Bible? Because you can go, yeah, there's some right here. But in this group, in all humility, we'd be able to say, yeah, but there's also some here. But I got to be able to look at my own over here and go, hey, you know what? But the reality is, is that there's also a bunch of stuff in this that I go, that's not in alignment with the gospel. Same thing that's over here. You see, the most important thing in today's world, and Jesus knew this, and Paul knew this, and everybody else, and John and Mark, is that the gospel is the most important piece. Oh, by the way, later on in verse 15, which I don't have up on the screens, but it says this. He's talking about this gospel thing. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Do you think that this is important to him? Absolutely. But what's at the center? Grace. Grace is at the center. So when we think about how do we speak out well in today's world, guys, maybe a better question is this. How do we actually represent Jesus well? How do we represent Jesus well in today's world? I'm going to give you kind of a goofy illustration maybe to help and maybe help you remember it. Uh, If I was as good as Kent, I would make an acronym from represent, but I can't do that. So I'm going to do this, okay? I'm just going to do LARPing. How many of you guys have ever heard of LARPing? L-A-R-P. Okay, very few of you. LARPing is this. Okay, just get ready. This is fun. You guys can go YouTube it and check all this fun stuff out later. LARPing is live action role playing. It's when people like in medieval uh, festivals where they go and they put on suits of armor or, you know, or reenact civil war or whatever it is, or even like things with dragons or whatnot, like that's real, real fantasy stuff. They can go out and they can actually play and get into these characters and, and really kind of live out and bring out this story. LARPing or live action role playing though requires that you put and insert yourself into a story to understand it. You gotta get into the story in order to be able to, to do this. And so LARPing, if we were to change that, here's what I would give you. If we were to represent Jesus well in today's culture, the first one is this, uh, make sure that you listen. You see, I think that our first and oftentimes jump is that we go right to that Titus 2 and we go right to our yes. We go, ah, see, I knew it. I was right and you were wrong. Information done, squash, death is really what we're doing. You see, that doesn't even take the time to learn. Guys, can, you be, can we be willing to learn, to go in and see, you know, I don't have all of the answers. I, I, this is what I know, but it'd be great for me to ask questions and for you to be able to share with me what's really going on in your life and why you think that way because the reality is that they might share a story from their childhood and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I feel silly. I had no idea that that's in part what led you to believe that. I may not agree But all of a sudden, once I listen, I can then begin to acknowledge and go, man, I can see how that would be hard. I can see how that has influenced you, how that has changed you. Again, I may not agree, but I can begin to understand that you were made in the image of God and you're not my enemy. So acknowledge 
Next one is redirect. In those moments, this ability for, for both people, both parties, to be able to redirect and point people to Jesus. Guys, the humility of this is that you need to be willing to point yourself. You don't come into a situation and you listen and you go, wow, that was really good. Thanks for sharing. I can really see. Oh, and by the way, I'm still right. You see, we redirect. And you like that Titus 2, where do we go? We go right back to grace. Like we need to be able to say, here's what I think is yes and here's what I think is no, but here's also a no and here's also a yes. And so I begin to see that, hey, let's actually redirect and focus on Jesus. Let's look at grace. And the last one is this, is pray. Because when you end in prayer, man, that's powerful relationship. That's a powerful moment. You guys see, all of a sudden, I think that when we begin to do this, as we begin to represent Jesus like this, all of a sudden, I think we look a little bit more like the Jesus who went to the other side. We went to, he went to the other side. right? He, he did ministry to the people, to the pagans, to the people that nobody else ever thought that he should go, and yet that's what he did. All of a sudden, we look a little bit more like the real Jesus who loved the woman at the well, whose marriage life was a wreck. He's like, tell me about your husband. She's like, I have no husband. She's like, you're right. You've had five. It's terrible. It's broken. All of a sudden, we look a little bit more like that, who loved her in that moment, and we look a little bit more like the real Jesus who died on a cross for people who radically opposed his kingship. You see, all of a sudden, we begin to look a little bit more like Jesus. You look at verse 20. Here's how this kind of ends. We go back into the chapter, right? This is a possibility. At least this is what happened here in this text. It says that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I love this, is that he is perplexed by John. He puts him in prison for political reasons, and he's entirely perplexed by him. Here's a man who has called Herod out for his own sin, and yet as he does it, it was resonating with something deeper inside of his very being. Like, I I knew, I knew it, this was wrong, and I feel it. And so it says that he listened to him gladly. And I know that most of you are like, oh my goodness, we're just finishing the first point, we're hosed, we're not gonna make it back from football. These last few things are on the, on the last page, so we're good. Okay, here we go. Here's her opportunity, here's what happens. Verse 21. It says, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the healing, or in the leading men of Galilee. So here's this moment, there's this opportunity, right? And so, so Herod, he's got everybody who's most important in the room and, and all the people of Galilee, he brings them in and here having this party. And my guess is there's lots and lots of alcohol, right? And there's lots and lots of lewd dancing, which probably means nude dancing, you know, like all that type of stuff. Like this is the world. You're like, that's wildly inappropriate. Guys, this is the Herodians. 50% of what they did was wildly inappropriate. The other 50% was just inappropriate, this is the family. This is the brokenness of this family. And so all of a sudden, like after all these dancers, right, and everybody is there, in comes Salome. This is where it gets weird. This is his stepdaughter enters into the room, and she does a dance. By the way, don't forget, it's not just his stepdaughter. It's his niece and grandniece. It's weird. This is a weird moment. And she does a dance, and we don't know what kind of a dance. We don't know how old she is, so if it's childlike and playful or if it's, or if it's adult in nature, what we do know is that the men in the room were very pleased. And so what Herod does in his, probably his excessive fashion, having too much to drink, says something like, hey, ask whatever you wish up to half of my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. See, that's probably meant to impress his buddies who are in the room. I have so much, it really doesn't even matter. I'm like, Jeff Bezos, I give half away and I'd still be the richest man in the world. 
which is probably isn't true, you know, but still, like you think about this idea of giving stuff away. And so here's, here's Salome who runs out and, and she runs to her mom with this opportunity and she begins to tell her mom, this is what, this is what he said. And I can picture her in this moment going, wait, hold on, pause, really? He said he'd give you up to half of the kingdom. Wow, that's pretty great. And if you're Salome, you're like, I know, this is awesome. This is the best Christmas ever. Guys, the, the, the things that we would ask for in today's world, if somebody said, I'll give you half of my kingdom, that's pretty ridiculous. But back then, it was probably a little bit different. I, got, I can get 50 horses. I can get an endless supply of grapes and someone feeding them to me. Awesome. Which might still be cool today. I don't know. Like you think about half of a kingdom that you would get, and here's the mom. You see, I just think Herodias in this moment as the wheels start to turn, as she starts to think, and you just wonder, like, man, like I know that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And more in reality, it's not the way that I really want it to be. And so this is an opportunity for me to make the world right. This is an opportunity for me to bring peace if I can just remove John the Baptist, if he just wasn't in prison, if I could chop off the finger of the man who is pushing that block out of my life so that way I don't have to keep picking it up and putting it back in. Man, that's peace. Life would finally be good. And so she tells her daughter, she says, you should ask for the the head of John the Baptist. Here's what happens in verse 25. Trying to find my spot. Here we go. And And she came in immediately, circle, highlight, underline that word, do whatever you need, because what we've been doing tracking through Mark is that what we see is is Jesus is building his kingdom. As the king of this new kingdom, there is this response and action. Oh, but by the way, what Mark is doing here in this moment is he's reminding us as readers that when Jesus acts and there's this immediate nature, oh, guess what? There's an immediate culture backlash as well. There is a fight against the kingdom that Jesus is building. And so she comes in with haste to the king and says, here's what I want. I want you to give me at once, right now, the way that I want it. I want the head of John the Baptist. And I don't just want the head. I want it on a shiny platter. It's grotesque. It's brutal. It's vindictive. And in a world where she could have had half of his kingdom, that's what she chose. That's the nature, perhaps, of the human heart. What it really shows us in this moment. Here's the, here's the neat thing that Mark is doing for us. When you look at the will of God, what is he doing? He is setting up the idea of shalom, Everything in its rightness, everything in its perfection, everything in its goodness, the way that it is designed to be, guess what she uses? She uses Salome. Do you see the difference? Do you see the connection? Here's in part what we find is that there's these things in life that we use to bring Shalom, but they never work. For her, she used Salome to bring Shalom, and it wasn't good. This is only the second time in Mark that, that we've focused on anybody other than Jesus. And Mark is pushing us towards the cross. He's reminding us that we would get to a spot that we would kneel in front and see Jesus' death and go, gosh, I am the chief of all sinners. 
in all of my unrighteousness, in all of my brokenness, in all of my sin, in all of my shame, in all of my guilt, that's me that you died for. And there's an utter amazement that takes place at the foot of the cross. Do you know how loved you really are? That's incredible. Because what happens here in this moment is that, that uh, Herod has got to make a choice. And it's in this moment because all the people that are there he thinks about John, and he's greatly perplexed by John. This is the one man who's been pointing me to Jesus. It's the one man who has the answers that I've been seeking to find, but because I gave an oath, can't go back on that. He makes his choice. And they bring John the Baptist's head back on a platter, and in so doing, it makes him exceedingly sorry. Missed an opportunity. But it helps us think about who we are in the lives of people around us. Because in his situation, the one guy that was pointing him to Jesus was gone. The roles that we have in each other's lives, the roles that we have in the lives of people at our work, in our neighborhood, there's this opportunity. Because I don't know if you know this, but this passage falls right on the heels of Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. You go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel. Here's our opportunity, right? Here's what Jesus says. He starts with this. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers. Nope, false. It's a land of 10,000 lakes. He doesn't say, I'll make you a fisher. I'll make you a fisher of men. And then in chapter 3, it says he called to himself those whom he desired, that they would be with him, that he might send them out. You get to chapter 6, all of a sudden he starts sending them out in twos. Here they go. Guys, you've got to start somewhere. Do you think, that, do you think that, that Peter was ready to go? Do you think that Peter was equipped in that moment? I just imagine Jesus like pairing Peter and Bartholomew. And, and Jesus like, hey, Peter, you get Bartholomew. He's like, oh, no. This guy, he's not even close to ready. There's no way he's equipped. And Jesus is like, neither are you, you bum. I know what you're going to do. I know what you're going to say. You're the chief. You're the chief bonehead of the disciples. You're not ready. He sends them out. You got to start somewhere. See, Jesus' first message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Guys, this is a kingdom that isn't divided by politics. It's not devastated by bigotry. It's not undermined by racism, etc., 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 because it's a kingdom that's the way that it's designed to be because it's apart from sin and brokenness. It's gospel-centered, but it doesn't mean that we don't say yes to what is good and no to what is wrong because repent is the first word in that line. Repent in the kingdom of God and believe in the kingdom, believe in the gospel. And what's that the disciples do? They go out and they proclaim the gospel. Culture has a platter. And sometimes I wonder to the degree in which I'm willing to face opposition is that when I look at this platter, do I see my own being on there or do I see Jesus? Because if Jesus is on this platter, who died for me, that radically changes. But if it's my head, then all of a sudden, I back out and I'm done. Guys, we have the opportunity to give people a real taste of the real shalom. In your book, there's this definition, I'll end with this. As a peacemaker, is this, I think it's someone who loves like Jesus. There's someone who sees the brokenness of the world and actively works to bring gospel hope and restoration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this moment, as we finish this morning, Lord, we're reminded of the shalom that you offer. And as I'm thinking about this Jenga set to my next, 
to my left and thinking about all of the different holes and all of the different pieces that have fallen out when it is together and it is complete and it is whole. That's the way that it is designed. But for so many of us here this morning, we've just been trying to pick up pieces as they've been falling and reinserting and filling and trying in new ones. And God, what we need is the real shalom. So Lord, would you show up this morning? Lord, I pray that we would turn to you, that we would be just amazed by the forgiveness that you offer us, that we would kneel at the cross and God, there's nothing better in this life than that, the shalom, the hope that we have in Jesus and the peace that it brings to the relationship that we have. Father, I pray that we would be a people in the midst of that who represent Jesus well. Lord, we love you. In the name we pray, amen.